Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 276 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast for Thursday, September 6, 2012. On today's show, family physician and author Dr. Ted Epperly will be joining me to talk about his book, Fractured, America's Broken Healthcare System and What We Must Do to heal it. Very fascinating read if you haven't checked it out yet. Uh, so we'll be talking about that and, you know, probably, you know, I'd like to maybe focus a little bit more solutions today. Everybody knows what the problems are, but we'll get into that entire conversation and a lot more coming up on episode 276 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. As always, to open the show, uh, my good friend, uh, the president of the American Academy of Family Physicians, Dr. Glenn Street. Um, this year, one of my commitments and, and a great interest is to be more engaged with you as leaders, chapter leaders, uh, and, and our frontline membership. Uh, on, on Monday, a Twitter handle, I'm privileged to be the first one to hold, uh, at AFPPrez, P-R-E-Z. I already have 29 followers. I feel so proud. Um, I have a long, long way to go to catch up to uh, our current student board member, Kevin Bernstein, who has a little over 1,000, um, and our, uh, our king of family medicine social media, uh, Mike Sevilla, who has nearly 7,000 uh, members. Medicine and social media. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. I'm your host. My name is Mike Sevilla. And what is this show about? I get that question a lot here. Uh, this show is by a family physician for the growing family medicine community, of which you are now a part of just by listening to this show. Thank you so much for that. I invite you to check out my digital library of stuff at uh, familymedicinerocks.com. And a big shout-out to uh, everybody following me on Twitter, all 10,051 of you out there. Thank you so much for that. And also a shout-out to everybody uh, who like the Facebook page for this uh, program, all 508 of you. Thank you so much. Today is Thursday, uh, September 6, 2012. It is 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, temperature here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters is uh, 83 degrees Fahrenheit. And I hope your week is going well out there, kids. Uh, very excited about this uh, interview going to be coming up uh, in uh, just a, a few minutes. Um, and I outlined a little bit of it last night on episode 275. Uh, and I want you to uh, check that out as well. Um, and uh, Dr. Ted Epperly will be uh, coming up uh, on uh, this show in just a, a few minutes. And uh, uh, you know, he's, he's a family physician uh, from uh, Boise, Idaho, and I got to know him uh, when I was uh, doing some uh, leadership positions for the American Academy of Family Physicians. He, of course, uh, was a former president and also 
former uh, board chair. Um, and also, uh, right now, he directs the Family Medicine Residency um, in Idaho and uh, currently the co-chair of the Center on Accountable Care of the Patient-Centered Primary Care Collaborative. Maybe we'll have time to uh, get into that in a little bit. And uh, we'll be talking about his book called Fractured, America's Broken Healthcare System and What We Must Do to Heal It. You can uh, check it out on Amazon in a hardcover format, which I have already purchased. And you can also get it on your Kindle. It's also on Barnes & Noble and also other uh, outlets uh, that are out there. And I also read some good reviews over on Goodreads, uh, which is a a decent review site um, out there. And I encourage you also to uh, uh, like his uh, Facebook page, Ted Epperly, MD. And over there you will see a picture of him, uh, him and the uh, uh, Idaho governor celebrating Dr. Ted Epperly Day in Idaho. That was uh, November 13th. I think maybe that was last year or the uh, year before. Uh, and also his book uh, was uh, featured on Forbes.com um, that in an article that is well-known in family medicine circles uh, that is called IBM Unleashes Primary Care Spring. And uh, so that is uh, this book is getting around there a lot. So uh, I've been doing a lot of research on Dr. Epperly and uh, his interviews over the uh, past few months and uh, be very excited to have him uh, come on in just a couple of minutes here. But first, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio uh, for having me be a featured host on this network. Just celebrated five years of this podcast on the network. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005, and if you're curious, yes, I am a real doctor. I am a uh, family physician in full-time private practice, meaning I see patients in the hospital and in the office five days a week. Uh, here in beautiful northeastern Ohio, it is sunny out here uh, this afternoon, and uh, so now I will uh, I will take my break, and uh, Dr. Epperly will be coming up right after this break. Here we'll be uh, talking about his book. Very excited about that. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, the unofficial podcast of the Family Medicine Revolution. Just Google FM Revolution for more details, and also. Uh, this uh, show is a proud member of the ProMed Network of Podcasts. You can go there by going to promednetwork.com. Dr. Ted Epperly will be right here talking about his book right after this. Family Medicine's leading voice in social media in my own mind. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, and on the line with us, we have the author of the book Fractured, America's Broken Healthcare System and What We Must Do to Heal It. Dr. Ted Epperly is here. Uh, Welcome, sir, to the show. Mike, thanks for having me, and hello to everybody out there in podcast land. Um, And I've been reading a lot about you. I mean, we've known each other for a few years now, and I thank you so much uh, for the time. And how I'd like to kind of start our conversation is uh, uh, something that that I've really enjoyed how you've kind of outlined, um, you know, where you came from and and where where you're at right now. I mean, you're 
a former colonel in the U.S. Army. Thank you for your service there. And, and what you talk about uh, when you're in these interviews is how you, you know, practiced in an integrated um, system, and, and now you're we're in a, a fractured system. I wonder if you can kind of outline those two things that can kind of go into um, the problems that you see in our current healthcare system, Ted. You bet, Mike. You know, I uh, was 21 years in the Army, and for anybody that's ever served in the military, the Department of Defense really has kind of a universal healthcare system. It's a single-payer government-run system. And what that provided was basically a focus on keeping people healthy. Uh, it was all about uh, timely care, uh, cost-effective care, quality care, uh, nobody was making a lot of different money uh, based on how much volume they were doing or what kind of procedures they were doing. We're kind of all in it together, and we're focused on 8 million uh, uh, military members and their family members to provide excellence in care. It was all about a team working together. It was an integrated system. Uh, we had electronic, electronic medical records that were working and talking to each other all across the world in 24 time zones. And it was a model of care that uh, I didn't recognize was not happening the same when I then got out of the military in 2001 and came to Boise, Idaho. And what I found in Boise is no different than Columbus, Ohio, or Tampa, Florida, or San Francisco, or Seattle, or anywhere else. And that is that the system wasn't operating that way. It was all about uh, volume and fee-for-service. It was all about... Uh, kind of a have and have not system where some people were getting all the medical miracles that uh, our system provides and others weren't getting anything. Uh, they weren't getting timely care. Uh, they were living sicker, if you will, and they were dying younger. And I remember distinctly, uh, Mike, having a bit of a meltdown over this about a year out uh, uh, when I was in Boise. And I called my wife, who was back in Georgia at the time, uh, because our youngest of our two sons was just finishing his senior year in high school there. And I said to my wife, Lindy, you know, I don't know if I can take this. I can't believe the greed of the system. I can't believe that people aren't focusing on trying to do whatever we can to help everybody have timely access and get quality care. And uh, she said to me a very profound thing, Mike. She said, so, Ted, what are you going to do about it? And that's when I decided uh, to get engaged with trying to make some differences in our healthcare system. I ran for the AAFP Board of Directors because of that, got elected, and then got elected to be the president. And my timeline uh, was perfectly aligned with uh, the 2008 uh, presidential election. So I was right in the thick of it, both as president-elect, president, and then chairman of the board, at the time that the AAFP was very active around engaging on our policy uh, that was 20-plus years old of health care for all. So I got to meet and talk with President Obama on six occasions and Congress on 18 occasions. I made multiple trips to D.C. and all across the United States. And in that, I learned a lot about our health care system, both its strengths and its weaknesses, uh, and what we needed to start to do to try to, to fix this. And so it was an outgrowth of all of that, uh, Mike, that led me to this. Um, yeah, and, and it's it's been just a fascinating process kind of seeing, you know, kind of your own kind of evolution, being an advocate for patients um, going through this uh, entire process. And, 
you know, in, 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 in your book, you know, uh, specifically, you know, when you, when you go into chapter two, what's, what's wrong with our system. And, um, and I encourage anybody to, you know, everybody to, to read this because especially, and I think you, you, you've touched on this a little bit as well, Ted, is that, you know, the, the citizens of the country and, and even people like myself and, and, and you and, and, and people on the front lines and, and in the grassroots don't know a lot about the system itself and can be very overwhelming. Um, and I think this book kind of, you know, uh, um, uh, outlines a lot of the, the multifactorial problems um, and, and things that, that people may not be aware of and how complicated um, our healthcare system is. Absolutely. I, my whole goal was to simplify and to make crystal clear. Uh, as I've mentioned, I spent a lot of time talking to the politicians. I was quite frankly sick of talking with the politicians. So the effort of this book was to reach to the American public, the discerning, educated American public. Because what I saw happen uh, with the Affordable Care Act and our whole health care reform discussion was, quite frankly, a lot of politics, a lot of spin, a lot of anger, myths, and lies. And what was escaping the American public was, why is this an issue? Uh, what has uh, led us to this? What, what are we really talking about here, once you kind of separate away all of the politics and who's right and who's wrong? And so uh, my attempt, Mike, was to make this crystal clear to the American public so that they could better understand, and then uh, with their understanding being better, that the nation would start to make more informed uh, health care choices around what we're trying to do with our medical system and our health care system. What I came to learn was that a confused and angry and fearful mind uh, takes refuge in the word no. And so if you don't want to change the status quo, you confuse people, you anger them, uh, you misinform them, and they will dig in their heels. That's what we saw. And my premise was that if an educated mind uh, is provided with facts and data and hears it in a more balanced way, a non-political, non-partisan way, then there is an opportunity for informed decision-making. So that was kind of my effort, if you will, to take this to the next level, to try to get above the politics and the spin, and to try to really dial it into the American public for what it meant to them, their families, uh, their jobs, uh, their futures. Um, let's kind of dive a little bit into the book. I mean, I'll, I'll start with with, uh, with chapter two as you outline what's kind of wrong with our system. Maybe you can have some remarks on things like you know our lack of focus on health, our lack of patient centeredness, um, lack of coverage, and, and what's wrong with with how we pay for healthcare and, and and how we deliver healthcare. Maybe some remarks on some of those issues. You bet. Happy to do that. Uh, first, I would say uh, we're terribly off track in terms of our focus, you know, and many of you out there are family physicians listening to this, and you know what I mean. Our focus is on disease and illness. It's not on prevention of disease. It's not on wellness and health. It's on the back end of the system. Uh, it's on what we do with people with diabetes and hypertension and strokes and heart attacks and dialysis and amputations, and it's very minimally on controlling that uh, well, uh, preventing it in the first place. So it's led me to kind of a, uh, of a metaphor, uh, Mike, of a fire department. What we've created in our healthcare system is the world's best fire department. We've got massive tankers and trucks, and we've got firemen galore, and we've got fire hoses that can hit a flame at 100 yards. But what we're lacking 
is somebody looking upstream and saying, wait a minute, why are we having all these fires? You know, wouldn't it be wiser if we start to think about education and prevention of these fires and not on the back end of this and developing these massive fire departments? So we have these Taj Mahals of medical centers and academic quaternary medical centers all across the nation that are producing these unbelievable subspecialists and doing procedures and imaging galore, uh, and we're paying pennies on the dollar to look at the prevention and healthcare aspects of, of keeping these things from happening in the first place. So as all of us as family physicians know, there's tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars flushed because of amputations and myocardial infarctions and ICU care and you know, premature births and all of those things, where if we had focused instead on the payment being to have robust, high-quality primary care delivered by all of us and more of us, that's part of the issue is there's not enough of us, so that we can make sure these things are handled in a timely and accessible way for our patients, then think of the downstream savings. Think of all the fires that are stopped. Think of the fact that we don't need to focus on all of the massive fire departments, but on all of us doing a better job in terms of preventing the fires in the first place. So that's what I mean when I'm talking about uh, we've got the wrong focus. We're focused on the back end. We need to be focused on the front end. And when you get outside of the United States and you take a look at what other countries are doing, it's exactly that. They're not dealing with downstream problems constantly. They're doing a much better job than we are at fire prevention upstream. In terms of patient-centeredness, I just wanted to, to mention, and many of us see this, the system, unfortunately, is built to prop up doctors and hospitals and insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies and medical device manufacturers. It's what I have come to term, uh, Mike, the creation of a wealth care system, not a health care system. We've got all sorts of massive amounts of money flowing to all these entities that have propped up a $2.6 trillion medical industrial complex. I mean, it is freaking out of control. And so what I'm focusing on here with the patient-centeredness comments is that, wait a minute, this shouldn't be about us. It shouldn't be about doctors and hospitals and pharmaceutical companies, etc., this should be about our people of our country. And what do we do to try to keep them healthy? What do we try to do to best serve them? Not to make money from them, but to serve them. Uh, in terms of the payment system, I'll, I'll end with this, Mike. Um, the, uh, the big issue here is that to do what I'm talking about, we've got to invest on delivery uh, reform, on delivery system change. We must value and honor what it is that primary care and family medicine in particular does on a daily basis to help with this problem. We have so made atrophic in our country a robust primary care system that we get exactly what this system produces, and that is high-end procedures and doing things to people on the back end instead of preventing them on the front end. So to make the change, there must be an alignment of payment that follows what it is we're trying to create. If we're trying to create wealth, then we leave it just as it is. If we're trying to create health and uh, promote wellness and prevention and good timely chronic disease management, then we realign the payment to do that. And so it leads to kind of this principle of the blended payment or a four-part payment. Right now, as all of you know that are practicing out there, it's kind of a fee-for-service system. Volume equates to our income. 
And what I'm proposing and what many others have talked about, the AAFP certainly talks about this too, is a blended payment system where we're balancing four aspects simultaneously. One is fee-for-service because there should be a payment if you're going to see someone. Second is quality so that indeed we start paying for outcomes, not just volume, but the value delivered by having good outcomes. In other words, if I'm taking care of a, of a group of hypertensive and diabetic patients, then how am I doing? How many of my patients are at goal? How many of my diabetics are at goal? What is my influenza vaccination rate? How many of my people have I helped lose weight? Those are the sorts of things in terms of outcome. The third uh, has to do with a non-face-to-face care management fee or a per-member-per-month fee, however you'd like to term that, so that I can integrate and coordinate care and be valued for that. Right now, I don't get paid to do that. I get paid to see people. But if I get paid to integrate and coordinate care to make sure that emails and telephone calls are done in a timely way to help the patient or to coordinate their downstream care in a way that helps save cost, there's got to be money in the system to do that if indeed we want to start to integrate this thing. And then lastly, shared savings. If I'm doing a good job and I'm keeping people from the ER and from the hospital, keeping them healthier, which is what I'm talking about, there ought to be shared savings coming back to my practice so that I can reinvest in my people and my performance uh, processes to make sure that that continues. So that blended payment is what I'm talking about to get us off the treadmill. Right now, we're hamsters on a treadmill. We're running fast because that's what pays us. We're running fast because that's how we create margin. But what it has to change from that is to this blended payment so that it can get us off the treadmill, slow us down, have a start to focus on better health care, and so that we can continue to do that and the finances of it promote interest in medical students then in coming into this system because right now we just don't have enough primary care physicians to make it happen. Uh, and, yeah, and as you've said it in multiple interviews you know in the past and and it's you know I'm really starting to you know f- you know figure this out on my own is is that you know it's, it it does does come down to the money and you know um and in our in our healthcare system the the money is kind of equated to value um and its procedures are valued at this point and um and it's really kind of really coming on to me now just reading your book and, and talking with you is that it's that that's kind of the, the the big thing that that is that is the challenge and and some of the things that you're talking about um you know um are concepts for the uh, the patient-centered medical home and and you know those type of models that that i i believe that that family medicine you know needs to advance better and, and the afp can be a better advocate of this um yeah, but for, for, for people who who read my blog and to listen to this show, a lot of them are not even medicine uh, at all. And so, so Ted, uh, let me ask you about specifically the patient-centered medical home. Is is when you talk to patients, when you talk to the lay public, when you talk to uh, when you talk to legislators in the past, um, how would you describe you know what the patient-centered uh, medical home model is? Yeah, good question, Mike, and thank you for bringing that up. And pointing out that I've got a broader audience here than just physicians, too, which is very helpful because, again, as you know from my book, who I'm trying to really reach as well is that discerning, uh, interested, intelligent American public that can form decisions. So in terms of the patient-centered medical home, for those that may not be as familiar with the term, really it can simply be thought of uh, really as 
two words. Uh, the first word uh, would be place. Uh, a patient-centered medical home is a practice. It is not an individual, so no family doctor or general internist or general pediatrician, nurse practitioner, or PA will be a patient-centered medical home. It's the practice. The practice gets designated by an accrediting body because they're practicing the second word, which is a process. So place and process. What the process is, is an integrated and coordinated care delivery by a team at that practice that starts to focus on keeping people healthy and well, not just reactively treating them when they're sick. In other words, the system now, as a practice, waits for people to drop through the door. We either have them come in because they're sick or they have some complication, or it might be some scheduled follow-up. What the patient-centered medical home does as a delivery system reform is starts to focus on keeping those people away from needing to come into the practice by proactively managing their hypertension, cholesterol, diabetes by outreach calls, interactive educational modules that patients start to get more engaged about their health care around, let's say, diabetes or asthma or emphysema or heart failure so that my team of, pay, of, of, of practice members, be them a medical assistant or an LPN or an RN, can then start to proactively manage that panel, let me know of the issues that are coming up that I need to see or I need a phone call on or an email on so that I can leverage their skills to keep my patients healthy. None of us, none of us want to spend a couple hours in a doctor's office. I know I don't. And I desperately don't want to spend six hours in an emergency room, and I desperately don't want to spend a couple days in a hospital. All of us, I think, would agree with the fact that if we had a system that reached out to us that we can engage with, that we can uh, interact with in a timely, asynchronous way, many times, and uh, most of the times, it needs to be asynchronous, not face-to-face, but if I get information back that kind of keeps me on the right track or a timely piece of advice or a timely prescription if that's needed, that's what I want. And right now, Mike, in my practice, I'm dealing with a lot of patients in that manner. I use email and interactive telephone calls and asynchronous communication with them to keep them away from necessarily needing to see me so that when I do see them, it's for the right reasons at the right place. And so that is what I'm talking about uh, when we're talking about the concept of the patient-centered medical home. It, became, it becomes a symbol, if you will, for the delivery system reform at the front-end primary care level to start to interact and focus into the patient's health in their communities, in their homes, to keep them away from all this downstream fire department that I've been talking about. Um, and I've been seeing a lot of language out there, and, and I've gotten a lot of questions on my website about language saying things like um, direct medicine and direct primary care. Are, is that um, type of concept, is that similar? Do they have some of the patient-centered medical home concepts in that? Because that language sometimes is confusing to people. Yeah, I think that the direct primary care uh, movement is an excellent one that talks and speaks right to the heart of a patient-centered medical home. In these sorts of practices, and they're kind of micro-practices, if you will, the physician engages with his group of or her group of patients 
in a way to interact like I'm talking about to really keep them healthy. There's 24-7 uh, interaction with, uh, with the patients, uh, and they're uh, very much focused on uh, a patient-centered approach towards keeping them healthy uh, and keeping timely access in the, in the format. Uh, the problem uh, with the micro practices and the direct primary care movement right now is that it's not scalable to the masses. It's not scalable, if you will, as it exists right now to all the people of America. So for those that can afford that type of care, that's great. But we need to also set up a system that's making sure that the underserved or the uninsured or those that are refugees or those that have uh, mental illness and high-cost health care needs are also being incorporated into the system. Uh, what I don't want to see happen is that we just cherry-pick off the healthy people that can afford that kind of practice, and then we don't have a system of good care for all the others. So what I'm talking about in terms of the patient-centered medical home, direct primary care is a subset of that. It's an excellent example of what a patient-centered medical home can be. But the whole system of healthcare in the nation needs to broaden so that every particular person in this country has a place to go like this, where a relationship can be established with their physician and their healthcare team to start to work with them to stay better, to stay more healthy and in better health. My um, guest on the line is uh, Dr. Ted Epperly, and we're talking uh, about his book, Fractured. America's Broken Healthcare System and What We Must Do to Heal It. You can check out more information at fracturedhealthcare.com uh, and you can get his book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble and other venues. Um, so, Ted, uh, I, I guess the, 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 the next uh, topic I'd like to talk about is, I mean, if, you know, if, if we're going to have these practices out there, we would need more primary care physicians. I wonder if you can speak to a couple of the, the solutions that you have, specifically um, talking about a uh, workforce, developing a balanced medical workforce, um, activate a workforce commission. What is that all about? Um, and because um, I, I read a little bit about it, and uh, I, I'm not sure quite um, what that concept is as far as uh, a workforce plan for the nation. Yeah, you bet, Mike. Thanks for bringing this up. Uh, first, let me uh, help people understand uh, what the issue is here. Uh, when you get outside the United States and you take a look at a balanced workforce in the other nations, and by the way, the United States ranks 37th in the world for our health care outcomes, 37th. We spend more than any other nation on health care by about 40% above the next closest country, which by the way is Switzerland, uh, per capita, and two to four times the average European country we spend on health care, $8,500 per every man, woman, and child in the United States, $2.7 trillion. And part of the problem is, is when you get outside the U.S. and you take a look at the workforce in those countries, it's about 50% primary care physicians, 50% subspecialists. That, if you will, is a symphony being played in harmony. They have the right balance, the right number of instruments. Here in the United States, as we talk today, uh, Mike, on your podcast, that balance is 70% subspecialists and 30% primary care physicians. If you will, our symphony is out of balance. We have way too many tubas, way too many French horns, 
and not enough of the other types of instruments. What that leads us to then is poor, timely access to care on the front end of healthcare and massively starts to produce on the back end in these big fire departments all of the overdoing of different subspecialties, different procedures, lack of coordination and integration because of the scopes of practice of each of these downstream subspecialists is narrow. And if you don't have a comprehensive knowledge set, then what you start to do is over-order tests, over-diagnose problems, and over-consult. So all of a sudden you have a patient that's loose in the system like a pinball bouncing around off the bumpers. Now what's frightening about this is that I just mentioned that it should be 50-50 at 70-30 right now, but when you look at the last 15 years of who's coming out of medical schools and what sorts of medical specialties or professions they're choosing in, in the medical profession, it's 90% of the kids coming out of medical school right now are choosing the subspecialties. 10% are staying in primary care. So at a time when we're talking about increasing coverage to as many people as possible in the United States, the Affordable Care Act takes us up to about 94-95% of coverage. At the time, it's most critical to have a balanced team on the field. We have the wrong team on the field, and it's getting wronger all the time. And that's the major problem here. That's why we're fractured. Now, what leads us to get the wrong team on the field is money. These kids are coming out with $150,000 in medical school debt. They're seeing that they can make incomes two to five times higher than the primary care physicians and have a better lifestyle, and this is becoming kind of a no-brainer concept. So we're seeing this mass uh, out-migration of workforce into subspecialties at a time in our nation when we absolutely must have just the opposite happening. So to try to solve this, then, a couple things. First and foremost, primary care has to be valued for what it's going to do to help us correct the problem. There is no other competing solution in the nation or in the world in terms of what rights this ship. It's having a robust primary care system. So, point one, primary care physicians have to be paid better. And the delta between what primary care physicians and subspecialist physicians get paid must be narrower. Right now, that gap is too broad. It's driving workforce. Data has been done, Mike, that shows that if it gets to be about 70% of what the subspecialists are getting paid versus two to five times more right now they're getting paid than primary care physicians, if it gets to be within at least 70%, that'll stop driving the workforce out migration. The second thing is that I'm very impressed with today's medical students. They are good people, good men and women choosing medicine, many of them for the right reason. I'm seeing a resurgence of kids, uh, and I call them kids because I'm old enough now to they are my kids' <laughs> age. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of them choose uh, primary care and family medicine for the right reasons. They want to be part of a solution, and so I do have hope for this. The third, and this is happening too, is that there are a lot of scholarships that are being applied now, both uh, at a federal level through the National Health Service Corps Scholarship Program, as well as many within states like Idaho or Ohio or others across the country that are starting to value primary care physicians, and they are starting to give loan repayment then for the creation of primary primary care physicians, and the placement, especially in underserved or rural locations. Uh, one of the other big things, Mike, and you alluded to this, 
is to try to right the ship, if you will, or create a better balanced symphony is a concept that was put into the Affordable Care Act called uh, uh, the Workforce Commission, if you will. And the Workforce Commission was going to uh, consist of about 15 individuals uh, from all walks uh, of life uh, in, in healthcare, in which there was going to be, for the first time ever, a national strategy put in place on what the nation's workforce must look like. This isn't only for physicians. This is for nurses, physical therapists, dentists, uh, psychologists, etc. everybody. So that we started to then get, if you will, a better team created. Not only the better team in terms of numbers, but also in location so that we made sure that uh, uh, underserved or rural areas or inner city areas were also being balanced in terms of the numbers of people. I've talked at length at uh, senior leaders of the AAMC, which is the American Association of Medical Colleges. They're the group that oversees the nation's 126 um, MD schools and uh, about 26 or so osteopathic schools. And the uh, AAMC uh, has uh, uh, said to me that it is not our responsibility to tell medical students what type of physician to be. And although I understand that, um, they're also then part of the problem in the fact that there's no accountability being exercised at any level of the nation's workforce. So what we have is a total free-for-all system where a lot of kids are choosing to then go into areas of medicine based on uh, lifestyle choices and financial considerations at the expense of what it means to the nation's care. That's the problem. That's part of why we're fractured around workforce. So to start to write that, we must have some sort of overarching strategy then about what it is we're trying to build, what is it that we're trying to resolve as a problem. Because until we agree to do that, it's going to be more of the same. Um, yeah, I just uh, um, that concept is, is, is a very complicated concept. I, I appreciate you explaining that because you know, that I didn't really even know that there was you know, not a big grand plan um, out there, and um, it is kind of a free-for-all uh, kind of what's happening, and that's one of the many reasons why we're fractured uh, in this uh, healthcare system. Uh, I'd like to shift a little bit to uh, uh, to incentives, and um, I'd like you to uh, explain a little bit uh, to the listeners, you know, about where we're at right now as far as you know, uh, you know, procedures being um, emphasized and incentivized, and how you would like to see that change to better quality of care and, and the incentives being more quality as opposed to procedural-based. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you're bringing this point up too, Mike. You know, um, our healthcare system is exactly what a capitalistic healthcare system would provide, and that is a generation of revenue and income. Uh, this is, again, a volume-driven system where procedures have been, quite frankly, overvalued. Uh, so we focus uh, a lot on, uh, again, what it is that generates income, which is to do things to people. Uh, it's those high-end procedures. And so to start to write that ship, we have to start to dial into the DNA, if you will, of how coding works and how uh, procedures get priced. Much of this uh, resides in the arena of Medicare. Medicare has uh, an evaluation panel called the ROC 
and I won't get into details about the RUC. It's a relative value-based uh, 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 update committee made up of about 26 members, of which about 23 of them are subspecialists and three are primary care physicians, so you can already kind of see where the problem lies. And they're the ones that make recommendations uh, to CMS, to Medicare and to Medicaid and to Congress in regards to what the procedure costs and pr procedure values should be. And so we're terribly out of balance in terms of overvaluing those things and undervaluing, again, the time it takes cognitively to sit down with a patient, understand their problems, understand the behaviors that lead to the problems, design a plan for a patient to start to work towards better exercise or better weight control or better nutrition. It's easier, uh, quite frankly, in my practice, to freeze six actinic keratoses on a patient's skin. These are precancerous skin lesions for the non-physicians in the audience. Than it is for me to spend an hour with them, working with their depression, their diabetes, their hypertension, and trying to craft a plan that helps give them a better quality of life. And so that's where we're off. So to fix that, now understanding it, there must be a dialing down of what it is we pay for procedures and a dialing up of what we do in terms of investment of time to start to work with people towards behavior change. In fact, this is a little-known fact in our country, but 40% of the deaths that happen in our country are due to people's behaviors. So if we really want to start making the biggest impacts, we start dialing down the fact that you can make $1,500 to $5,000 doing a colonoscopy or $15,000 doing surgical procedure X or Y and start to dial up from the $100 that you get paid uh, to spend 30 minutes with a patient to try to help sort out the complexities of that patient's mental illness and four other medical conditions so that we start to refocus then on what it's going to take to start to get people moved along the path of health. And that's why I say we've created this massive fire department. It's so much easier just to do the procedures. It pays so much better just to do the procedures. So it's all about alignment of incentives. If I've learned anything, Mike, from doing all of this stuff, all you have to do to figure out our healthcare system is follow the money. Follow what gets paid for. And so if that is the premise in a capitalistic healthcare system, which we have, then what I would suggest is that the alignment of payment needs to take a different path. It needs to take a different course. It needs to value what it is we're trying to create. And if we're trying to create health, if we're trying to create timely chronic disease management that's high quality, that prevents all the stuff downstream that gets paid higher money than to amputate a leg instead of to control the diabetes, that's what it's going to take. Um, yeah, I'm so glad you said that. I mean, it does come back, unfortunately, to the money. That's the reality, you know, of, of the world that we live in and the capitalistic society. And, and you know, incentives also apply to, to patients. And, uh, you know, I, I see you know, patients in my office all the time. Their employer has um, instituted um, – you know, some uh, benchmarks for them to hit to um, have patient accountability as well. That's one of your solutions uh, to, to help uh, cure the, the fractured healthcare system. But I, I think incentives for patients are also um, important. I hear that from, from uh, our colleagues all the time, you know, of uh, 
patients have to have, you know, kind of skin in the game as well. And, and it's not all, you know, about the physicians and us not ordering tests or not duplicating tests. Uh, um, I think patients also are invested, you know, in changing, you know, our fractured healthcare system. And I think that's very important as well. Yeah, uh, totally agree with that. And in fact, uh, I, I, I would even take it a step farther. I think they must be incentivized. Uh, any of my patients can out-eat any medication I put them on. And unless they're part of the solution, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm trying to swim upstream with this. And so I believe that not only should there be, again, through like the blended payment formula change I talked about a little bit earlier, part of that shared savings, if you will, Mike, needs to flow right back to the primary care practice. And from the primary care practice, I believe, there should be payments right back to the patients. So it, it could be uh, as a, uh, a premium reduction. It could be by a copay reduction. It could be by a fixed number of dollars that goes back to the patients at the end of the year. If the patients are achieving targeted goals that are set jointly between the provider and the patient for the patient's best health, and they're engaged in that process, and they lose 20 pounds, or they stop smoking, or they decrease the number of smoking from 25 cigarettes a day to three cigarettes a day, or you name it, uh, that ought to be something that's valued by the system, they're rewarded for, and they start to get engaged over. And so I think that uh, to pick up on that same theme of incentives and payments, they must be part of the solution. I do believe that the patients are one of the most forgotten, if you will, or unrecognized possible solution to our system. Uh, we've spent so much, again, on just doing things to them as opposed to proactively engaging them that we have, again, this system that just responds to problems as opposed to prevents them in the first place. So this is a really big point that we're talking about here. And, you know, I'll tell you, it's been my experience, and I've been a family doctor for 32 years now. Most patients do care. Uh, it's not that they don't. It's that most people don't spend enough time with them in any meaningful way to get them engaged. And it doesn't have to be all on the physician's uh, shoulders. This can be part of what the patient-centered medical home does, proactive education of the patients by other members of the healthcare team. Uh, interactive computerized modules that uh, engages them in a fun, stimulating, interesting way around their knowledge of diabetes and what they need to do for it, or heart failure, or emphysema, or asthma, or you fill in the blank. But we can start to see that the focus, if we start to engage how we pay for things, how we start to align incentives, how we start to engage behaviors, really starts to make a big difference. Um, and yeah, as 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 we talk to colleagues and as I talk to you know uh, you know peers about this, it, it just kind of leads to one of the chapters in your book where you have a whole chapter about why America struggles for for this, you know what, why people don't like change. And and one of the interesting things I'd like you to to elaborate on is um, you know we we do have you know this this uh, attitude in the country of you know, uh, being individualistic and, and having choices. And, and if I choose not to be healthy, then, you know, I, uh, you know, I choose to do that and, and, you know, not really being focused on health, but being focused on disease. And a, a lot of um, the people that I talk to, you know, they're, you know, uh, I guess without looking at themselves are kind of, you know, 
looking at patients and saying, well, you know, what do you do with, with those patients who choose not to, you know, um, you know, follow your recommendations or they, they choose to say, hey, you know, I, I have a right to do this and I have a right not to do that. Uh, um, I, I, how do you approach the, those colleagues when, when you're trying to, to make the case for change and, and trying to, you know, get those patients to, to, you know, to follow your recommendations and to emphasize things like health and not disease? Yeah, uh, a couple thoughts on this. Uh, one is that they need to pay for that. If they're going to pay for a bad health choice or they're going to choose a bad health choice, then they pay for that. And what that means is either a higher premium or higher copay. So if they're going to choose to smoke or they're going to choose not to lose weight and continue to gain weight at the expense of their hypertension and cholesterol control, which is going to lead downstream to a heart attack or a stroke or other you know, comorbid processes, then, then there are penalties for that. Uh, and it shouldn't be such a severe penalty that they don't seek health care. We don't want to do that. But on the other hand, there's got to be incentives here. Uh, if you're going to choose a bad health care behavior, then there are consequences of that. And the simplest consequence for a patient is in some sort of monetary way. So either, again, increased premium prices on insurance or increased co-pays when they're seen uh, or some sort of taxation penalty, quite frankly. Uh, And again, I'm not trying to uh, have us become, you know, some sort of state or uh, nation where there's all sorts of penalties levied. I would much rather work proactively on incentivizing appropriate behavior than penalizing bad behavior. But on the other hand, Mike, I think it's got to be a balance here. And so if somebody's choosing poor behavior, there's a payment for that. There's a consequence of that because it's going to get cost shifted onto other people if we don't in some way try to take hold of that. The second thing I'd say, and I've seen this happen with many of my patients over time, and, you know, many people practice bad health care behaviors. You know, I'm sure I've got some. I probably drive too fast and I put my seatbelt on a little bit too late sometimes. Fortunately, I've not been hurt by that. But those are a couple behaviors just in myself that need to be modified. But, you know, I'm learning and I'm doing a better job of that uh, as I age. And my point uh, here is that uh, I continue to work with patients towards moving them along a continuum of better health. So, uh, and I'm sure, Mike, you've done this in your practice too. I have uh, several recalcitrant folks that are smokers, and I tend to then approach them like this over time. Mrs. Smith, I know that uh, you're still working on uh, trying to reduce your smoking. I know that it's playing out in terms of how your asthma and hypertension are are doing. And so uh, we've had this conversation before. I want you to know I'm here for you. I care about you a lot. And at some point when you're ready, I'd love to work with you on helping reduce your smoking. Uh, Let's get it down to as low a number of cigarettes as possible with the goal of being one day uh, we'll get you to stop. And, you know, today may not be that day for you, but I just want you to know I'm here for you when that day comes. And every visit, Mike, I just kind of reminder, Ms. Smith, see that you're still smoking. I'm not going to go into any lecture with you. I just want you to know I care, and I'm here when you want to stop. And I've had over the uh, my career, both in the military and now for 11 years here in Boise, I've had multiple people tell me, Dr. Epperly, I've given that a lot of thought. I'm ready to stop. And I've been able to get a lot of folks uh, off of cigarettes, Mike, just by being persistent with them over time. 
Um, my guest on the line is uh, Dr. Ted Epperly, uh, author of the book Fractured, America's Broken Healthcare System and What We Must Do to Heal It. I encourage you to check out the website at uh, fracturedhealthcare.com. You can get his book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other uh, venues. And uh, in the remaining moments that we have uh, uh, left, Ted, I do have just uh, uh, just some general questions as far as you know putting together the book. I've had a lot of um, our colleagues say, you know, ask Ted about about that. And uh, um, you know, w- w- when you were putting together this book, I mean, and and uh, you know, you're you're very uh, uh, you, you have your time very regimented, which I, which I very much admire. Um, when you start, when you started writing the book, um, can you share a little bit about the process about how you put that together? Um, did you have certain people uh, kind of go through some chapters? Can you share a little bit about that process? Yeah, that's uh, a great point. I I decided that I'd break it up into ten chapters. Uh, I wanted to keep it about two hundred to two hundred and fifty pages. And I really wanted it to be crystal clear. Uh, that was the hardest challenge for me, was to keep it clear. Um, and I'll come back to that in just a second. So I, I divided the, the book up into ten uh, areas. I wanted to kind of discuss what led me to do this, then what's wrong with the system. I wanted to talk about what our history of trying to fix it has been over the last hundred years. I wanted to then segue into a chapter that talked about what other countries have done and why they've been successful. I wanted to talk then in another chapter, Mike, about what it is about us as a nation that leads us to not embrace health care for all, to embrace a better health care system. I wanted to then address a chapter on um, the winners and losers in health care. Then I wanted to jump into the Affordable Care Act a bit. How was this created? What was it done? What was in it to try to solve the problem? I wanted to make that really crystal clear for people because it's a long law with a lot of moving parts, and I wanted to try to dial it into the sorts of things we've talked about. And then I wanted to end with where we're going. So once I got the, the kind of the outline done, if you will, uh, what worked for me, and this might be a, a piece of insight to people out there, is I dictated it. My first draft was done on tape because it was easier for me and more time-effective to dictate it than it was to write it. And then what I did is after I got the dictations back, then I started to really work on the writing end of that in terms of amplification, correction, clarifications, additions, references, all that kind of stuff. So it took me, um, uh, people might be surprised by this, it probably took me only about uh, three weeks to a month uh, to really get the first draft done. Wow. Uh, but then it took me almost a year <laughs> uh, right. to edit, to re-edit, uh, to, have, uh, to have that done. And uh, it returns to now a point I want to make just clearly, and I'm mindful of the time, that I recognized that in writing something, less is more. It's all about simplification and clarification. I had way too much stuff in this. And so I've actually reduced in the final product the book by probably half over what I had. For instance, I had 50 tables uh, and graphs and charts. I reduced that down to about 10. Uh, that's just kind of a graphic illustration of this. I had editorial help at Sterling and Ross, my publisher in New York City. They were very good at that. But I'll tell you, who helped me the most was my brother-in-law. 
he was a retired physicist, a Ph.D. physicist, who actually took a look at my chapters and helped me in a wonderful way go from three paragraphs to two without losing content. And so I would say to the people out there that, uh, yep, you know, I did the work, I did uh, had all the concepts, but boy, uh, good editing uh, from either a professional editor or for some somebody who really knows how to write can really help. Because I think one of the strengths of the book, Mike, and you alluded to it, was that I wanted to keep it clear, I wanted to keep it clean, I wanted to keep it simple, so that the patient, excuse me, the people reading it, not the patients, the people reading it, would not get lost in it, would find it captivating, would turn the page, would get to the end of the book. And so that was the real challenge for me. Did you uh, finish the manuscript and then seek out a literary agent, or or what? can you share a little bit of that process at all? Or You betcha. Uh, happy to do that. So, yes, I finished it up, uh, had uh, some editing done by myself. I had several colleagues also put their eyes on it, give me feedback on it. And then I went ahead and put it out uh, to multiple agencies, publishers that had published books on healthcare. You can find that uh, both online and there's uh, written books uh, that can be bought in bookstores in terms of publishers. So I sent that out. I probably sent it to 25 uh, different publishers and I had two uh, that were uh, really interested. Uh, and that's probably about right. Uh, it's probably about a ratio like that. Uh, for people who have tried to publish a book before or thinking about it in the future, you can't let no stop you, <laughs> not, it, not if you're truly dedicated to it. Uh, and so uh, from the two that I had a strong interest in, uh, we got that down to one, uh, and that was Sterling and Ross in New York City. They've done some stuff on health care before. And why Sterling and Ross was really interested in this was that they knew uh, that health care reform was not, even though the nation started to get really tired of this because of the all the wrangling over the Affordable Care Act, they knew that with the Supreme Court uh, uh, going to make a decision at the end of June of this year and then the upcoming 2012 presidential election, they knew that health care reform was first not going to go away, it was going to be re-energized in the conscience and the psyche of our nation. But number two was that they recognized from looking at the book that this is an ongoing problem that isn't just going to go away and that they wanted to be a part of trying to help educate America to a better uh, a better way of, of functioning on health care. So that's kind of why or how I got to uh, the publisher and why I think they tackled it. Um, and uh, uh, I guess my last question is, and I've had a lot of people ask me this to ask you, a lot of people see this, Ted, as a uh, as a great platform and, and uh, you know, maybe a possibility uh, for you maybe, you know, seeking public office or, you know, giving more to the patient or, or giving back to, the, to, uh, uh, to your patients in a different way as, as, as that been a consideration at all. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. A couple points there. I've come to see that the nation is my patient in some way, Mike, as a family doctor. You know, I, I, I love patient care. I've got a lot of patients here. Uh, I value them. But I also recognize that uh, I'm seeing a bigger picture now of systems as my patient, states care as my patient, the nation's health care system as my patient. So I'm trying to approach this almost like I would a patient with a problem, and that is to listen well to what the issues are, 
to think broadly about what the problems are, to try to articulate as clearly as possible back to my patient what those issues are, and then to try to come up with a plan to help the nation, if you will, as the patient, move to a better outcome. So that's uh, point one that I would say about uh, kind of how I've seen the bigger picture. Uh, In terms of political office, I was asked by the Idaho Democratic Party, uh, which is almost a non-sequitur in the state of Idaho, (laughs) to to, to potentially consider running for the United States Senate. And uh, I said, wow, I'm really honored and flattered, but I have absolutely no interest in doing that. What I want to do is try to help change our health care system. Uh, it would be very frustrating for me, Mike, uh, actually to be elected to office right now in this country and to go to Washington, D.C. or to a state legislature and be part of the very partisan warfare that's going on there. Uh, I can't imagine how frustrated I would get that people couldn't even work together to try to get to the common good. So what I recognized as a greater way to try to help change something in our country, at least at this point in time, was to write about it. It's kind of the pen is more more powerful than the sword sort of concept. So <laughs> yeah. this was my, if you will, my first effort to really step into the arena in a different way than the political way, to try to, in an educational way, better inform our country. Uh, yeah, and depending on, on how this book does, I mean, I, I was going to do real well. Uh, I'm sure with all the stuff that that uh, that you uh, dropped off in the in the first book, probably be a second book, uh, depending on kind of what happens here. Um, but uh, but Ted, I'm going to ask you for for your for your closing thoughts in a second. But I, I do want to thank you for for coming on the show. My guest uh, has been uh, Dr. Ted Epperly. Um, and uh, one of my family medicine mentors through the years, and uh, his, we're talking about his book Fractured, America's Broken Healthcare System and What We Must Do to Heal It, and uh, check out his uh, uh, the, the website for the book at fracturedhealthcare.com, and you can check him out at uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And my, my final question for you, Ted, is that when, when people listen to this program and when people read your book, you know, a, a lot of uh, our colleagues, our physician colleagues, and also patients or citizens uh, of the nation here can be very inspired to to do something, uh, to try to to change our healthcare system. Um, after they after they read your book and, and after they get some ideas in your in their head, what advice do you have for action steps for for not only our physician colleagues but but for uh, but for the public in general? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. Uh, uh, for the Public in general, uh, Mike, uh, a couple things. If we can all take greater accountability towards our own personal individual health, that's something under our control, we'll be part of a healthier nation, and for that we'll be a better nation. Also, if we can do that then as an accountable patient or family member for others in our family, and by the way, I have a, a whole section on the importance of mothers, uh, and the importance of women uh, in healthcare decisions in our country. They are a valuable asset to helping uh, us have a healthier nation. But if we can then be accountable uh, at a family level in terms of trying to help our other family members be healthier, that's what I would say the general public could do. For the physicians uh, that uh, are on the line or part of the podcast and, and you're following, uh, Mike, I would say that the big thing for them is to recognize the value of the relationship they have with their patients. That is priceless. And to start to help uh, work with them in proactive ways towards keeping them healthier. And I recognize right now many physicians are just caught up on this treadmill that I've talked about uh, earlier with you. 
but there's a lot of movement happening out here in this space towards the patient-centered medical home about aligning payment. And for them first not to give up, not to burn out, not to just say the heck with it. They've got to be part of the solution and they need to help transform their practices towards a better health uh, uh, care system, uh, about a better patient-centered uh, health-facing uh, enterprise that they're engaged with. And what I'd like them to do is be re-energized, quite frankly, about what it is we're trying to create and to help inspire those medical students and others coming up through the pipeline to be the type of physicians that will help make that happen. For, if you will, the larger uh, uh, political uh, entities in our country, I would like that all of them would read this and all of them could get on board with trying to work together in some degree of harmony around what it is we're trying to accomplish in our country. And that is a higher quality, lower, quest, uh, lower cost, and more accessible healthcare system. And if we can together do that, I have no doubts that America downstream will have a much stronger healthcare system, uh, one that can be role modeled to other countries in the world. You know, it's not a lack of our ability to do these things, it's a lack of our will to do these things. And I remain hopeful at all those levels I talked about. We'll get to a better healthcare system. I can't think of a better way to end. Uh, my um, guest has been uh, Dr. Ted Epperly. Check out his book, Fractured America's Broken Healthcare System and What We Must Do to Heal It. Uh, Ted, thank you so much for the time. Best of luck uh, with the book, and it's always great talking with you, sir. Mike, thank you. I'm honored. And, and again, uh, to all of you out there, uh, thank you for being interested in this. And again, let's not give up on trying to get to a better place for our nation. And for that, we will be a healthier nation. And thanks again, Mike. Thank you, Ted. Um, all right, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, ends the uh, show here today. Um, you know, this, these type of conversations we definitely need in this country. And don't be afraid uh, by, the, uh, by the complexity of it, um, by the emotion of it, um, by the, you know, people trying to politicize it. Um, you know, this is something that, that has to be done. We didn't even touch on, um, but it has been talked about in the press. You know, this is uh, the path that we're on is unsustainable, um, and we have to change the path that we're on. It's going to be painful. Um, it's going to be um, it's going to be a lot of yelling and screaming and things. But this is something that needs to be done. And, and I appreciate Ted coming on the show. I encourage everybody to check his book out. You know, if you don't know anything about the, the our healthcare system here in the United States, if you think you know something, read his book. It will it will uh, enlighten you to things that you may not know about as far as the complexity of of our broken healthcare system and the complexity on trying to fix it. So check out uh, the website for the book at fracturedhealthcare.com. You can go to Amazon. You can get it on your Kindle. You can go to Barnes & Noble. Um, and also, I want to give a big plug uh, to the Patient Center Primary Care Collaborative. You can Google that, um, and that is another step that you can take to learn more information um, about this, uh, and especially for my physician colleagues out there, TransferMed um, also um, is a great website out there as well. And, of course, the American Academy of Family Physicians has a lot of good uh, resources out there as well. Uh, but that ends our show. We went a little bit long today, but I, I thank uh, everybody for hanging with me, and whether you're live or you're listening later on the podcast. My name is Mike Savilla. Uh, yeah, check out my digital library of stuff at familymedicinerocks.com, and a uh, shout out to everybody on Twitter and Facebook. Um, we'll be talking about this more here on the show. Uh, so uh, everybody have a, a good week, a good weekend, and we will see you all down the road 
uh, some time. Have a good day, everybody.